Welcome to the CSR Podcast. I'm Brian Brazo. I'm currently here with Chris Geeky, PhD student from Johns Hopkins University, who is visiting Warwick as a part of the partnership between the Singleton Center for the Study of Pre-Modern Europe and Warwick's Center for the Study of the Renaissance. Hello, Chris. Hi, thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit about your research? Well, I am in the last year of my PhD at Hopkins, and I'm focusing on the Italian epic poet Torquato Tasso, who was probably one of the most important literary figures in the Western canon. If not of all time. <laughs> yeah, but uh, unfortunately, perhaps not as uh, well-read as he should be today. Couldn't agree more. What have you discovered thus far? My focus is mainly on the development of epic style and epic language and how in the 16th century people were really concerned that uh, Italian didn't have what it took to be a vehicle for epic grandeur and gravitas. And so I'm really looking at how over the 16th century people start worrying about this and start experimenting with things like meter. Uh, And then along comes Tasso and basically writes the first successful modern epic in Europe. Can you tell me a bit more about perceptions about using Italian for epic? The main problem, as far as I've been able to tell, is that people see Italian as being too pretty. It sounds too nice. And that the idea of epic is that when you're talking about wars and battles, things need to be a bit heavier. And that for some reason, something in Italian isn't quite uh, adequate or suitable for talking about those things. So ultimately, they were looking back to Latin, to Greek? They were primarily looking at Latin and Virgil because they, they saw in Virgil something, well, he was sort of the ideal. And the question was, how do we reproduce Virgil's sound in Italian, which seems so antithetical to the whole thing. And what kind of poetry was being written in Italian? What kind of poetry did these figures think could be written in Italian prior to Tasso? Well, the majority of poetry was, I guess we would call it Petrarchan. So it was lyric poetry mainly focused on themes of love and longing coming out of the tradition embodied in Petrarch, who had written in the 14th century. But by the 16th century, he was really the main model for writing anything in Italian poetry. And how was this Petrarchan poetry disseminated? Was it primarily through print? Were people listening to it? Was it sung to music? (laughs) Well, all of the above, I'd say. Mainly in the courts, he was being listened to, and he was getting printed constantly. At the beginning of the 16th century, people were starting to produce these massive volumes with commentaries on Petrarch, and they're writing manuals for how to write like Petrarch, like rhyming dictionaries, so that you could make sure that a rhyme word that you use wasn't out of left field and then it sort of belonged to the, uh, the appropriate Petrarchan vocabulary. When we're talking about epic in this period, what sort of subjects were writers thinking about when writing epic? We could talk about Tasso. We could also talk about writers prior to Tasso. I mean, what is epic? Well, I I don't think I personally would offer a definition of epic because... Could we say it's just a long poem about a war? That's a good start, I'd say. (laughs) Maybe we could add on something like with the appropriately serious and solemn language that it that needs to convey that sense of war. But in the 16th century, people were also writing poems about, uh, let's just say, fighting in general, which were the chivalric romances coming out of the legends of King Arthur and the Carolingian romances like uh, the Chanson de Roland, where the main focus was on knights going around questing, dueling, falling in love, slaying monsters of various sorts. Sort of the 16th century Lord of the Rings. Yeah, exactly. And it was incredibly popular, just like Lord of the Rings is today. But at the same time, I think certain people still felt that that sort of poetry wasn't quite up to the level of epic, that there was something still missing. 
Uh, so they were still trying out different kinds of uh, forms in poetry to see if they could get up to the, the heights of epic. And these value judgments, it sounds like they might have had something to do with class distinctions. Do you think that's perhaps the case? Thinking about romances as, you know, the sort of popular genre that people are reading, they're hearing in town squares, as opposed to something like epic, which would be weighty and ponderous and have this strong Latin tradition behind it. Yeah, well, another aspect that a lot of these naysayers were bringing up was the erudition required to truly write and understand epic, because I think most of the intellectuals saw Virgil and Homer as well as these giant repositories of incredibly wide-ranging knowledge. So there's this question of who's consuming literature and where they're doing it. So when you mention class distinctions, I think that that's in play. Uh, although I think our notion of class is a bit more vertical, I would say, whereas at the time it's a bit more horizontal. There's just there's simply different spaces where poetry is being consumed and produced and thought about. So there's the court culture. A poet will be would be brought on by a patron to write certain kinds of poetry. So even if that's a highly intellectual environment at times, maybe the patron did really didn't want to hear that complicated, strange stuff that people were trying out. But then there's the piazza where people are listening to those chivalric romances constantly. Well, and I mean, there were also public lectures, right? Where people exactly. think about poetry, we think of someone like Benedetto Varchi. Yeah. Um, this idea of commenting on poetry publicly, giving these public lectures. Right. Um, so poetry is not just something that people are reading at home on their own. Right. I'd actually say that, I mean, it's hard to say with the utmost certainty, but it's hard to say that people were reading it alone at home. There seems to be uh, a large communal aspect to the consumption of poetry, the experience of poetry. And part of this is the question of the manner and space of consumption is really driving a lot of my research as well. Getting back to your research, can you tell us about how Torquato Tasso fits into your dissertation? Well, at the moment, my dissertation's in two halves. The first is really trying to establish the context. What were people talking about? How were they talking about epic style, epic language? What were the stakes in distinguishing epic poetry from other kinds of poetry, like lyric or chivalric romance? The second half mainly focuses on Tasso himself, and what I see are his unique interventions into the conversation. Because I really think that Tasso has something new to say, and that that's the reason why his poem is so successful. And that's interesting that you talk about Tasso having something new to say and having a successful poem. Were there that many poets prior to Tasso who were writing literary theory and also practicing it, also writing their own poems to try and bring this theory into action? Yeah, there were a few. I'd say that most theorists were, in some sense, poets. Whether or not they were good poets is a different question. The first one that comes to mind is a guy named John Giorgio Trissino, who was mainly active in the first half of the 16th century, and he's sort of the first real theorist of epic. And he's also the guy who wrote the first regular epic, that is, an epic poem that follows the strictures of, or the rules of classical epic theory, mainly from Aristotle who's also following the model of, of, of Homer in his own epic. And he wrote a poem called uh, Italy Liberated from the Goths. poem which Tasso himself condemned. What was it that he said about it? Known by few, read by fewer, and enjoyed by no one at all. That's it. And buried in the sands of time or something right, like or that. Right, or it should be forgotten forever or something right. like that. Yeah, Tristino didn't enjoy a lot of uh, success with his poem. Uh, he, he spent more time thinking about how he should be writing and not actually writing. Whereas I think Tasso spent a lot of his time simply writing poetry. I mean, his output is just enormous. He wrote so many poems, most of them lyrical. I definitely think that's a major contributing factor for why his epic is so good. Right. Tasso had a lot of t- 
time as well on his hands <laughs> for all of this poetry. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about Tasso's Madness and how that has been a standard reading for a long time and has, I guess, obscured really some scholarship on Tasso? Right. Well, Tasso today, and I'd say coming from the Romantic tradition, is mainly seen as the first mad poet in Western literature. He is at the court of the Este family in Ferrara, and at a certain point, he, let's say, goes a little crazy, and the Duke of Ferrara locks him up for seven years. It's hard to say to what extent the madness influenced his poetic output and the degree to which Tasso was actually mad, but a lot of the current conceptions of Tasso stem from the fact that he spent so much much time in prison, essentially. Right. I mean, there's this romantic vision of the dark, brooding poet has these beautiful insights, but isn't appreciated by his society. These myths, I would say, started pretty early, too. Montaigne wrote in one of his essays that he supposedly visited Tasso in prison and that Tasso was so crazy that he was unable to speak in any human language and was in the corner, unable to recognize anyone. I think that might have been an exaggeration. And I think it's uh, difficult to say whether or not Montaigne actually visited him. But there's this idea that even... In the late 16th century, people see Tasso as this kind of inspired genius and that because of his genius, he went crazy. And unfortunately, that's still a view that tends to get circulated around today as well. Tasso was also quite religious. He approached the Inquisition a few times. Yeah, and I'm I'm still not entirely convinced that he was worried about the salvation of his soul because Tasso also went to university in Padua to study philosophy when he was younger and later wrote a large number of philosophical dialogues. And he really thought of himself, I think, as a philosopher. And so when he went to the Inquisition, I think part of that was he wanted to test himself. Could he argue certain things? Could he stand up for himself intellectually against the Inquisition? And I think this, coupled with his growing paranoia and anxieties about his own competence, probably didn't sit well with the Duke and anyone else. So he kept going to the Inquisition to get checked out, and the Duke had to keep saving him (laughs) and uh, pulling him out. Do you think part of it might have also been a power play, where Tasso might have been trying to get the Inquisition on his side against the Duke? Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, there are so many strange political and religious factors involved. The Duke at the time... Well, the Deste family in general was at odds with the Pope and the Papal States. So there's this political element as well. Tasso at that time when he was in prison was also thinking about leaving the entourage of the Duke of Ferrara to go to Florence or Rome. And I don't think the Duke saw that in a very positive light. And uh, the Duke at this point is Alfonso II Deste. Right, right yeah. yeah. What's interesting, too, isn't there an anecdote about Tasso escaping from prison, dressing up as a shepherd, <laughs> yeah. and running down to Sorrento to see his sister? Yeah, Tasso's first biographer, Manso, who published Tasso's biography, I think 1619, fairly early, because Tasso died in 1595. Manso said, I'd say Manso invented a large number of legends about Tasso that we know today. And one of them was that Tasso escaped from prison once, the first time, because he got in prison multiple times. But he escaped, went on foot all the way down to Naples from Ferrara and was testing his sister to see if she truly wept at his death, which actually may have been true. It's hard to say. Given Tasso's proclivity for grand, excessive gestures, it's, I wouldn't put it out of the question, actually. Can you tell me how did you first get interested in this topic? I started getting interested in Tasso when I took a seminar with Walter Stevens at Hopkins, and we read his epic and some of his other poetry, which I found fantastic. But then we also read some of his literary theory. I think it was the combination of such an interesting and engaging poem, 
together with someone who's so clearly invested in trying to explain and understand how poetry works that really drew me to the whole time and the conversation that was going on. What do you think are the biggest challenges when doing this kind of research, either research on Tasso or research on meter and verse in the 16th century? I'd say the main problem, at least for me, the thing that's most challenging is trying to balance the need to explain certain historical details with the larger picture. I find it's very easy to get lost in looking at certain figures and certain documents to explain how a historical context, a certain group of people in a milieu, viewed poetry, viewed epic, and trying to balance that level of detail with larger concerns so that you can actually make statements about how tastes and interests change over time. It's very easy to confuse the forest for the trees in this sort of study. At least I'm finding that problematic. Can you tell us before we go, how does your work relate to broader trends in the field, either of Italian studies or study of early modern poetry? Where do you see your work fitting in? First of all, I've noticed that recently in Anglophone studies of the early modern period, there's a renewed interest in talking about literary genre, how it works, how to describe it, and how early modern thinkers were describing it. What's at stake for them ideologically? I'm interested in looking at genres not from a rigidly Aristotelian perspective like you usually see in 20th century studies of genre. For the most part, there are two or three principal studies that tend to inform how we talk about things like literary genre in the 16th century in Italy. And most of them come with or come from a look at how Aristotle influenced these debates. And I think that what these sorts of studies don't really get at is how these thinkers and poets in the 16th century were addressing the much more fundamental practical problem of how to write a poem. Because Aristotle isn't very good on that. He's very good at giving you concepts and frameworks for discussing questions, but he's not particularly useful in advice on writing, especially in a language that's not Greek. And so what I hope to contribute to the field is something complementary to the conversation that's already been going on about reassessing genre, either from an Aristotelian or a Horatian perspective, because Horace, I think, has become much more a topic of interest for scholars today as a way to think next to Aristotle, not necessarily with him. I hope to continue the discussion by looking at questions of style and language and the anxieties that come with, well, how do we, how do we reproduce Latin in the language of Petrarch, which seems so antithetical to the enterprise. And ultimately, these questions of what makes good poetry, what makes effective poetry, how can you really affect your audience, they're questions that we still think about today. Right. And going back to the question of audience in terms of class distinctions, I think this this conversation of who was this poetry for, this epic poetry, that's something that it's challenging, it's difficult, it's not for everyone. And with someone like Tasso, it also becomes something that's formally, linguistically complicated and difficult to read. I see that as analogous to problems that appear throughout the history of Western literature. Thinking about something as recent as modernism in the early 20th century, you look at someone like Joyce or, or Wolf, they're trying to do something new. Questions of how to express certain ideas in new ways that require new formal innovations. I see those as being analogous in some way. And so I hope that maybe we can see that Tasso was addressing similar problems. If we think of the world today, what would you think would be analogous to Tasso's thinking about epic or even Tasso's practice of epic? Something like Game of Thrones. Do you think Tasso would have considered that as epic? <laughs> 
Uh, it's hard to say. I think he might have not been completely on board with Game of Thrones. I think Game of Thrones might fall more into the category of romance, primarily because it has nothing really to do with history and our history as people. I think Tasso sees epic as something that's wrapped up in the ways that we exist today. So there's a kind of continuity between the poem and our lived experience today. Something that Game of Thrones is not quite relevant to our daily goings about. Tasso might also <laughs> criticize it from the point of view of verisimilitude. Oh, you know? yeah. The idea of dragons is a little unrealistic. Right. Um, and issues of plot. If we think what's interesting about Game of Thrones is I think we can make interesting parallels to Ariosto in some ways. Oh, sure. As Tasso was very concerned with having a unified plot and a plot that was leading towards a very specific end with carefully selected episodes. Yeah. Something like Game of Thrones, we have eight to ten storylines going on simultaneously that we continue to switch between. Yeah. Um, which is much more similar to the Orlando Furioso. Definitely. But uh, not nearly as light or ironic as, and fun. <laughs> it's a much darker Right, no, it, it lacks a bit of the levity, I would say, <laughs> that Ariosto has. Uh, but still, nevertheless, in terms of form, narrative, I think, yeah, it's not quite where Tasso's going. I actually don't know of anything recent that I would equate to Tasso's vision of epic poetry. I'd have to think about that. Hamilton, the musical? <laughs> I haven't seen Hamilton. So I don't know. But maybe, why not? Uh, I mean, it is about American history. You yeah. Know, one thinks about it. And you are experimenting formally with the Th presentation of the material. Are. Thank you very much for being here today, Chris. Really appreciate your input on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. We hope to hear more from you in the future. For more information on topics discussed here today, check out our website at www.tiny.cc forward slash CSR podcast.